Well, it's so uh, good to be with you all. It's good to be with you, uh, y'all, at, at the Waterford campus and the Lake Mary campus, and to the men and women of 33rd Street. It's good to be with you all as well. Today, our text comes from Genesis 2, and I'm going to start reading in the second verse. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your bulletin, and you can read along that way. Genesis 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Fishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is God's word. The British... Uh, writer Dorothy Sayers uh, made an interesting statement during World War II. She said, during World War II, the entirety of British culture had the biblical view of work forced upon them. And because of that, people were happier during the war than they were before it and after it. That's a pretty shocking claim. She said, the habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money and to get position in society is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think otherwise. So often people become doctors not primarily to relieve suffering or lawyers not because they have a passion for justice, but because they want to bring themselves and their families up in the world. During World War II, One of the great surprises many had in the army was they found themselves for the very first time in their lives happy. Because for the first time in their lives, they found themselves doing something not for the pay because it was miserable and not for the social standing because everyone was thrown in together, but for the sake of getting something done that needed doing. She goes on to essentially say that that these people knew that what they were doing was really paying off for everyone, and that led to a kind of happiness in spite of the awfulness and the tragedy of war. She goes on to say, inevitably, not long after the war, people went back to the normal way in which we work. 
We work to get status. We work to make money. We work for identity. We work for our families. We work to make a name for ourselves, and it makes us miserable. Are you miserable in your work? What is your view of work? Do you feel called to the work that you are currently doing? Is your work simply a means to an end? How much time at work do you spend thinking about that next vacation or your retirement? Would you say you were made for the work you were doing? In the beginning, God worked and he created work. Genesis 2.2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God worked. And then in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God created work. So in the beginning, God worked and he created work. Work is not the result of the fall. It's not the result of sin, but it's rather something that we were designed for. We were made for work. So what can we learn about what God had in mind when he thought up work from this text we just read in Genesis 2? Well, I think four things. We can see the origin of work, the purpose of work, the problem with work, and the rest underneath our work. So the origin of work, the purpose, the problem with it, and the rest underneath our work. I couldn't, I couldn't alliterate it this week. I'm sorry, guys. You're just going to have to remember it. Um, so let's start. Number one, the origin of work. Work originated in the dirt. Verse seven, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And then in verse eight, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. God's work involves getting his hands dirty. God is a manual laborer. He plants gardens. He puts his hands in the dust to form us. And this isn't just how God works in the beginning. He continues to be a God who gets his hands dirty. We see this to an even greater degree in the New Testament when God not only comes in contact with the physical world, but becomes himself physical, a physical human being. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, continues his work of getting, dirty, getting his hands dirty, literally. So why does, that, why does that matter? Why does the fact that work originated in the dirt matter? Why does it matter that God got his hands dirty? Why does it matter that, that God took on flesh in Jesus? What difference does that make to our view of how we work? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, which has largely shaped our Western thinking, manual labor was considered demeaning at best. In fact, most people looked at it as being dehumanizing. It was work that was done by people who were seen as less than human. But the fact that God got his hands dirty tells us that there is dignity in all work. Every single bit of work has dignity. Getting your hands dirty in your work is actually dignified. Manual labor images our creator. In fact, manual work is the origin of all work. My dad owns a commercial tile contracting business. And so when I was a kid growing up, I would spend my summers uh, working for him. And, um, and one summer, Winter Park decided they were going to um, brick Park Avenue. It wasn't always bricked. Or I mean, I guess it was probably bricked back way back in the day. But it, it, it turned, 
it became paved at some point, and then they decided they were going to brick it again. And so my dad got the job of, of laying the bricks on the perimeter of the road. So, um, so there's like a, a strip of, of bricks that needed to be grouted and in, in place, and then the bricks on the road, you put sand in, and, and, and you, don't have to, you don't have to grout them. But we had, to, we had to grout and lay the bricks on the sides of the road. And so I spent a summer on Park Avenue laying brick, and, uh, and it was awful. I mean, it was absolutely miserable, um, mostly because it was hot, um, but, but it was also miserable because I remember how, uh, how people looked at me and, and the other guys that I was working with, the people who were walking to their fancy lunches or the people going shopping. Like, I remember what it felt like uh, to be looked at uh, in, a, in a certain kind of dehumanizing way. And I remember this one lady in particular, uh, she was probably in her 50s, you know, very fancy lady. Uh, she said to me as she was passing by where my coworkers could hear her, she said, aren't you the wrong color to be doing that kind of work, son? And I remember that. Now, not only was this woman an extreme racist, but she also had a very unbiblical view of work. Making a pair of shoes or cleaning a house or laying a brick road is dignified work. It is godly work. It is work that brings order out of chaos. God's work is about bringing order out of chaos. And we see that from the very beginning of the story of the Bible. At the very beginning, it says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Everything was without form and there was chaos, but then God spoke and he ordered it. See, the Bible begins with this amazing statement of a God who is and what he does. And then it says God places a man, he places us in a garden and says, all right, now you Bring order out of chaos. Clear it up. Till it. Create. See, manual labor, the simplest work, has dignity because it brings order out of chaos, and in doing so, images our creator. Our theology starts in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. So that means our theology has to start with the fact that this earth, this world is good. The physical world is good. This world is not, as some people might tell you, a kind of temporary world, a, a temporary theater for individual salvation narratives. We're not just all here waiting to be taken away one day. That's why, even though I love how happy the song makes me feel because the, the, the song is, is such happy music, um, but, but I, it drives me crazy and I hate, I hate hearing it, is that old spiritual, I'll fly away. It is horrible theology. It's a theology that, that reinforces this idea that what's really important, the only thing that's really important is that souls get saved and go to heaven, which also means that what, what is not important is digging ditches and farming and tilling the ground and making shoes and laying bricks. That stuff's not really important. Essentially, the theology of I'll fly away would say the only person who's doing what's really important is me. I'm preaching the gospel. That's my job. That's what's really important. And what you do isn't. Ordinary life isn't important. So this idea that, oh, you're a gardener or you clean houses or you're a farmer, or you're a bricklayer. Okay, well, I mean, I guess go ahead and do that and tithe and give the money to me because I'm really doing the Lord's work. This world is gonna burn up one day and, and someday we're all gonna be in heaven and be souls and that's all that matters. That's not a biblical worldview. That's not what the book of Genesis says. It's not the ark of the whole Bible. That's not how the Bible ends. The Bible ends with a new heavens and a new earth. God is going to redeem our bodies. 
Jesus' res- resurrection proves that. And in fact, in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul tells us that our bodies too will be resurrected. And you know where our resurrected bodies will be placed? Back in a garden. A garden that is surrounded by a city that has been built and cultivated by us. That's the final picture in Revelation. So you know what that means? That means I have the temporary job, not you. My job, and some of you who are doctors, and especially those of you who are lawyers, like we're going we're gonna to go out of a job in heaven. The whole purpose of our individual salvation, the whole purpose of Jesus Christ putting on flesh is to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, essentially, we're all going to be gardeners. That's the end result of the story of the Bible. Therefore, while we're here on earth, there are no second-class jobs. The origin of work is manual labor. It's getting your hands dirty. I can't walk down Park Avenue without thinking about that woman and being reminded of how easy it is to miss the glory of God in the ordinary, getting your hands dirty kind of work. So that's the first thing. Work originated in the dirt. Second, the purpose of work. We see this in verse 15 and 16, especially in 15. 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Gardening is the paradigm for all work. Now, the man Adam was the representative of the whole human race. Therefore, anything God asks of Adam, he's asking of us. So therefore, gardening represents all work. So what does a gardener do? First of all, a gardener doesn't destroy the garden, but he does mess it up. He does mess with it. The gardener's not like a park ranger who says, no touching, or, you know, like, you can't walk on the grass. Like, that's not what a gardener, I mean, that's not what a, that's not what a gardener does. The gardener gets in there and messes with the garden. He's going to cut down some trees. Sorry, Ferngully, <laughs> but he's going <laughs> to cut down trees. Why? Because work is rearranging the raw material of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everybody. That means you don't destroy the domain. You don't just build a parking lot, but you also don't just let it go. You mess with it. You develop it. You cultivate it. You get creative with it. That's really at the, at the core of every, every bit of work. All work is that. For example, what's music? Well, music is taking the raw material of sound, which is part of our physical world, and reforming it so that when we hear it, it brings meaning to our lives. Why music brings meaning to our lives is another sermon, one that Andy Simons is going to preach in the fall, which I cannot wait for. Um, But it's a pretty mysterious thing. See, music is about taking what is there and reforming it so it, it creates in us a kind of flourishing. Or what's architecture? Architecture says, oh, here's a, here's a stone in the ground. But I'm not going to leave the stone in the ground. I'm actually going to take it out, and I'm going to form from it bridges and buildings and roadways. Why? So that there can be human interaction. So there can be human culture developed. So that, so that we can be a human society. Now, you and I, we might never say, thank you, God, for I4 Ultimate. But one day, our children's children will, Right? <laughs> Or what is, our, what, what is a story? A story, if you write a book or a novel or a play, what are you doing? You're taking the raw material of human experience and forming it into a narrative that helps us make sense out of life. See, God creates these domains 
and then he puts us in them to creatively and graciously rearrange them, reform them for the purpose of human flourishing. Richard Mao was the uh, former president of Fuller Seminary. Uh, One time he was talking to a group of investment bankers, and, and he said this to them. He said, when he reads Genesis 1 and 2, he sees something there. He sees a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit uh, sitting there with all these resources. Within the Trinity, there's love, there's personality, there's community, there's glory. But God doesn't just sit on his resources. The triune God decided in Genesis 1 and 2, even though he knew what it would cost him, even though he knew it would, it would ultimately cost the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the triune God decided he would leverage his resources and create space for a whole universe of beings to share what he had, to share in love and personality and community and glory. Therefore, Richard Mouse says, when you're an investment maker and you see a need that, that has not yet been filled and then you find the talent that can fill it, and you risk your resources and and leverage your resources to get that person to meet the need to produce a product that creates jobs and and makes life better, you aren't just doing something godly, you are doing something God-like. See, the purpose of all of our work is to be creative, is to be God-like. And not only the jobs that are creative are the that we think of as being creative are creative. This works for the shoemaker or the ditch digger or the bricklayer, for the gardener, for the musician, for the investment banker. We're all doing work that rearranges a particular domain to bring about human flourishing. Dorothy Sayers, who I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, said this, biblical work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. Let me say that again. Biblical work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. Could that be said about your work? I think yes. Maybe you aren't doing your work from that mindset, but you could. No matter what you do, your work could be the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. What would it look like? if you began to do your work that way? What would need to change in the way you did work? Does that give you some excitement about going to work tomorrow? Number three, the problem with work. At the very end of the text, we read where God says to Adam and Eve, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, and literally in the Hebrew, it says on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, if you've read ahead in the story, you know that they do eat it, but they don't die. They eat it and they, and they stay alive. So what's going on there? Is God, uh, was God joking? Was it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was it just a game? No, death is more than just a physical death. Death is the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics says everything is falling apart. So no matter what you do, no matter what you eat, no matter how hard you exercise, no matter what you inject in your face, you are dying. You are falling apart. 
The reason I, I, I started this diet or this healthy lifestyle, the reason I stopped drinking Dr. Pepper is because it was killing me. But even me separating from my, my longest love relationship in my life, like it's still, I'm still going to die. I'm still falling apart. Everyone is dying. Culturally, spiritually, socially, vocationally, everything is falling apart. That's what God meant. He meant the minute you turn away from me, the minute you stop trusting in, in who I am and my goodness, everything will be destroyed. Everything will start working in reverse, will be falling apart. That includes our work. That's why God says to Adam after they've disobeyed God, he says, you're going to continue to work, but now when you work, there's going to be thorns. What he's saying to him is work will still hint at what it's supposed to be and what it will one day be again, but it won't be the same. It's gonna be hard. So let's say you, uh, you forget the first two points of the sermon. You forget that, first of all, no matter what you do, all work is dignified. That, that we have a God who got his hands dirty. So it, he shows that, that even what we may think is the most menial bits of work are still dignified. Or if you forget that work is a gracious expression of creative energy uh, released in the service of others, and you start to think, well, no, no, work is all about me getting my name known, or me getting ahead, or, or me making a, a place for myself in society. What's going to end up happening is you're going to develop a cynical attitude about work. You're going to start looking to take jobs just to get ahead. You're going to start taking jobs just for the money, and you're not going to do very good work. Or if you do good work, your whole reason for doing good work is the money. I remember when I moved back uh, here from California, I had been out in California pursuing my dream job, and I was devastated that I, that I moved back here. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to have to give up my dream job, I'm going to make a lot of money. And, and I remember I, I went into my boss and said what I wanted to make in a year. And, and y'all, I've never made that. I mean, it's like I'm so embarrassed that as a 25-year-old, I, I said this number to this man. I need to call and apologize to him. But, um, but that was my whole mindset. My mindset was if I'm not going to do what I love, if I'm not going to get to do my dream, then I'm going to make a whole lot of money. And you know what happened? That job started killing me, but it didn't just kill me. It started killing all my relationships. I almost lost my marriage because of that. See, our view of work will either kill us or it will free us. There's no in between. Right now, whatever your work is, it's either killing you or it's setting you free. If you forget about work's good design, if you forget that, that all work, any work you do has dignity in it and that all work is about serving others, if you forget that, your work will kill you. But if you forget that the fall happened, if you forget that sin has affected every aspect of our world, including our work, it will also kill you. Just as dangerous as a cynical view of work, so is a romantic attitude towards work. I, I hear a, a kind of you know, younger people say that are just out of college, they, they, I hear this, something like this a lot, like, you know, I, I don't care about money. I just, I just want to use my gifts. I just want to be me. And, and I want to be in an environment where like, we're all on equal footing, where there's no real hierarchy, but it's just like, it's this space where we can think and create together and just be on each other's teams. And, and it's going to be so wonderful. And, and we're not going to have any chairs. We're just going to sit on balls. And, and like, you know, it's amazing. But listen, 
No amount of foosball tables in your conference room slash meditation room slash CrossFit gym office is going to combat the effects of the fault. Work is always going to be hard. You're not going to find that perfect job. Things fall apart. Work is difficult now. It's always frustrating. Even the best job will be affected by the fall. And so our view of work will either kill us or it will set us free. Is your job right now killing you or is it setting you free? And what view have you held about your job? Lastly, fourth point, there's rest underneath the work. I remember the first job I had where I, where I learned that, um, that you don't just get vacation, like you gotta earn it. And I remember thinking like, what? Like, no, like that's just, we just get it, right? And, uh, and I remember like you had to work a whole year before you got a week. And I was like, what, what is this? This is insane. And, uh, uh, and, and that is true. Most of us have to work for our rest. But in the Bible, it's interesting because it's the other way around. See, the Bible says that we need freely given rest if we're gonna be able to work properly. Something really interesting. If you're reading through Genesis 1 and 2, it's pretty striking when you get to the seventh day. So as you're reading through it, it says, you know, there was morning and evening the first day. There's morning and evening the second day. There's morning and evening the third day. But then when you get to the seventh day, when it says God rested, it doesn't say anything about morning and evening. Why is that? Why does it, why does it not conclude that day? Well, in the book of Hebrews, which was written many years later, thousands of years later, the author gives us insight into what was happening there on that seventh day. The author says, therefore, we see that the promise of entering his rest still stands. See, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that the seventh day, the seventh day has never ended. That we right now are living in the seventh day. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 says this, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. What does that mean? Is, is the writer of Hebrews saying that we don't have to have a job? No, we were made for work. That's part of our design. So what is, what is the writer of Hebrew getting at? What is he trying to, to help us understand about our creation story? Well, here's what he's saying. So many of us are trying to prove ourselves in our work because we lost something in the garden. When we stood before God face to face and we knew him, we knew our value. We knew we mattered. We knew that what we did with our lives mattered, but we've lost that. And so now we are constantly looking someplace else to find it. And so, so that's really what we begin to work for. You see, there's now work underneath our work. And it's that work that's underneath our work that exhausts us, that makes us want to quit, that makes us hate our jobs. I was having coffee with a guy this week, and he, and he was talking about how hard his job is and how stressed he is, and, and it just, it's just draining him. And as we were talking, I, I started asking him questions about his actual, like, the work that he does, and, and does he like it? And, and as he thought about it, his face kind of lit up and he said, no, I, I love my work. Like I love, actually I've thought often like there's nothing else that I would rather be doing. I love my work. So why is he exhausted? 
Why does he want to quit? Why does he hate his job? He doesn't hate the work. What he hates is the work that's underneath the work. See, it's not the work up here. It's not making the music. It's not making the clothes or farming or starting the company or producing products or laying bricks. It's, it, that's not the work that wearies us. It's the other work. It's the work underneath our work. It's the work of proving ourselves. It's the work of earning it. It's the work of being better than everyone else. But see, what the writer of Hebrews is inviting us into is to a kind of rest that should go underneath all of our work. See, you and I, we can have a deep sense that God loves us. We can have a deep sense that we matter. We can have a deep sense that our life uh, counts when we understand this, when we understand this Sabbath rest that you and I are invited into. That should undergird all of our work. In fact, only when we have rest underneath our work are we able to truly work well. Are we able to truly work in the way that we were made to work? Because see, now work is no longer about us. It's about the work. It's about the service of others. It's about human flourishing. Remember, we belong to each other. It's about getting done what needs doing. So if you're exhausted in your job, I, I, I encourage you to take a step back and say, all right, do I actually hate the work? Do I hate the parts of the job that are about cultivating something and that are about the service of others, that are about the, the human flourishing? Or do I hate what's underneath it? How I get my value from it? How I need to be better than other people? How I need to get ahead? Is it, is it that work that is making me exhausted? One of my professors at seminary, Reggie Kidd, um, I, I really, I, when I think about rest underneath work, I'm so thankful for him. And, and he was great, too, because he made me feel better about getting a D in Greek. Um, and so I'm always thankful to him for that. Um, he said, you'll never use it. And I, I really don't use it very often. Um, but uh, in his class, uh, I remember he used to talk a lot about his father. And, and he would say that he knew his father loved him the best he knew how. But his father also had this way of communicating to him that whatever he did wasn't quite good enough. That, he, that he's just got to try a little bit harder. And he said this especially happened with his grades and in sports. Um, but then he says, as a grown-up, as an adult man, as he looks back on, on all those messages that his father sent, he began to really see that what was happening there was his father was projecting onto him his own sense that he wasn't enough. You know, his own father, he said, was the first in his family to go to college. He was the first to get a graduate degree. He was the first to get his doctorate. But in his mind, he never rose past a non-tenured, non-published junior college professor. So it wasn't enough. So the work underneath all the work he did kept telling him, you're still not as good as someone else. You still haven't really earned it. And Reggie said that because his dad felt that, he was constantly pushing him to do more. But then with great vulnerability and honesty, Reggie told our class that he realized the day, he remembers the day he realized that he was communicating those same messages to his three young boys. That he was telling his three young boys in so many different ways, nice try, but you need to try harder. He said, I remember with shame the day one of my kids at about the age of four proudly brought home from church a piece of Sunday school art. Before I put it on the refrigerator, though, I felt it necessary to correct a misspelled word. He said, I wondered what I communicated to my child that day. 
Then Reggie quoted to us John Calvin. I went to Reformed Theological Seminary. Everyone quotes John Calvin, and I I will quote him for you. Um, John Calvin said this, God's children are pleasing and lovable to him since he sees in them the marks and features of his own countenance. For we have elsewhere taught that regeneration is a renewal of the divine image in us. That's what we've been talking about. That's what we talked about the first week, the fact that you and I are made in the image of God and that us fully alive is reflecting back God's image. John Calvin goes on to say, therefore, when we have been engrafted in Christ, we are righteous in God's sight because our iniquities are covered by Christ's sinlessness. And whatever fault is otherwise in our works, it is buried within the purity of Christ. Accordingly, we can deservedly say that by faith alone, not only we ourselves, but our works as well are justified and pleasing to God. So what does that mean? What's he saying? Well, he's saying because of Jesus, you and I can have rest underneath our work. Because you and I know that to Jesus, we were worth it. That all of a sudden, we have tremendous value because the creator of the universe saw everything about us, saw all the ways in which we didn't measure up, all the ways we had failed, all the ways in which we had turned against him and sinned. And he said, you're still worth it to me. I will live the life that you were designed to live and then die the death that you deserve so that you can rest. So that underneath everything you do can be this sense of rest. So whatever your work is, because of Jesus, our heavenly father proudly displays our Sunday school art on the refrigerator and turns to his heavenly court and says with a puffed up chest, that's my boy. That's my girl. Look what they can do. That's what we were made for. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that in work, we get to experience what it's like to be creative, that we get a taste of of what you experienced as you created this world. And Father, I thank you that our work does matter, that you didn't didn't complete it all, that you you gave us the, the raw material and said, now cultivate and create, make beauty serve one another, bring about human flourishing. And so, Father, whatever we've been called to, wherever we find ourselves tomorrow at work, Father, remind us of that dignity. Remind us of that call to serve others. And Father, I pray as a community, we will be a church that builds one another up, that that encourages each, each other, especially when it's hard, especially when the, when the voice in our head tells us that, that we're not enough that we've got to continue to earn it. May we find our rest in the fact that Jesus, you did it. You did everything we needed to do so that now we are free to work and love and serve, not worried about ourselves, only worried about others. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.